Brittany. I want to thank you for joining me again on Two Glasses of Bourbon. Uh, so Brittany is our first returning guest. I'm super excited about it. We've got a lot to talk about today. We're going to cover some of the goings on at the Bluegrass Trust. They have some uh, some really exciting stuff that we're going to cover. So Brittany, uh, do you want to give a quick introduction on yourself and the Trust? Yeah, so the Bluegrass Trust is the region's leading historic preservation advocacy nonprofit. We have 10 functioning committees, um, we have a very involved board, and we cover everything from community preservation to historic buildings that we own and are in the process of restoring um, to our house museum, um, which is Homont, located in Gratz Park. Um, we do easements and just anything that you can think of for historic preservation advocacy. That sounds fantastic. Uh, so today, I know we're going to talk mostly about your newest project, or, you know, I guess we're talking before the show started, maybe your second newest project, the newest one that's out in public so far. So do you want to kind of tell the tell our listeners what that's about? Yeah, so um, the Bluegrass Trust has done walking tours in the past. We've mostly focused in the Lexington area, although I will go ahead and say um, we are looking to maybe expand in some more of the Bluegrass region in the future. Um, but we wanted to do a new walking tour this year. Now, in the past, we really covered H1s, um, neighborhoods that have a historic overlay on them. But we kind of wanted to expand and, you know, embrace a little more diversity and a little more, you know, a little less of the built environment and maybe a little bit more of a cultural landscape. So we decided to look at the whole neighborhood of the East End. And this was last fall. Um, the other thing that we began talking about was how, you know, our brochures that we have generally used in the past to do walking tours are great. We can leave them at hotels. We can leave them at, you know, Lexington Tourism, um, Visit Lex. However, we really wanted to kind of push ourselves more into the 21st century and embrace a more digital model that people can use on their smartphones and access anywhere. So those were two things that we kind of kept in mind. We, we settled on the East End. Um, Thomas Tolliver, who's in the CPC committee, was a huge, just he was just a wealth of knowledge and um, as far as what resources were already available on the history of the East End. And so uh, Thomas and I began collaborating and putting together, you know, everything that's already out there on the wonderful history of, of this neighborhood. And we started to discover that while, you know, the African Cemetery Number no. 2 had really focused on its location, Phoenix Rising had really um, kind of looked at the black jockeys and tra trainers in the in the area and the Kentucky Association track. Um, and then, you know, the churches had their own local histories. Nobody had really put together like a holistic collection of all of this information. You know, the Lexington Public Library had oral history collections from Paul Dunbar High School, and, but there was not one place where you could access everything together. So at first that we were looking at a cool. website so called History Pen where you can, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I think I lost the connection there for a second. I, th I thought you had trailed off and so I was jumping in, but no. Oh, okay. So, um, so yeah, we, we, we started looking at history pen um, and, you know, it was an online website, but it didn't really have the navigation skills that we felt would be easy for, you know, every single demographic that would be interested in the walking tour to use. It just wasn't super user friendly. Um, as far as when you pulled it up on your smartphone. So it was more for something that you could 
you could look at on your computer, which was still great. But in the midst of kind of troubleshooting with the website as we were doing the research and, and writing all the stories, um, Keeneland actually reached out to me because I was working with them for research. Um, and they said, we would love to sponsor this tour. So they actually sponsored the purchase of a really nice app. It runs off of a platform through Cleveland State University called CurateScape that we ended up putting the tour on. And it offers multiple audiovisual elements and experiences, as well as the ability to embed links and link out to um, other websites or other material that might be out there. So Keeneland came through with us, the sponsorship of the app and also four years of maintenance, which was awesome. And we started working with Cleveland State University to develop this app. So the app itself is called Tour the Historic Bluegrass. Um, we will be putting multiple tours on this app over the next few years. I would really like to see us fill it up with um, immersive audiovisual tours throughout the bluegrass Um as we were talking about a little bit ago, Jeb, we actually have another tour lined up, which hopefully we'll be releasing in June. I'm very excited about. Um, and Can you give me a hint as to what the tour might be, or is that you know, top secret as of now? Um, I'm going to say it's top secret right now because we are we are partnering again, and okay. I got to work with the partner on the release for that one as well. That's but totally fair. Yes. Um, so. So um, it only has one tour on it right now, and that's Lexington's East End Walking Tour. But that tour has 32 stops, and um, hopefully it will be sufficient for all of our app users for the next few months. I hope that they everyone downloads it. Um, so far, the tour has been promoted by Keeneland. Um, they released their press release earlier this week, and um, they we did like a social media um, rollout uh, a little more than a week ago, of course, to all of our BGT followers and also to Keeneland's 225,000 um, social media follower, followers. Um, Keeneland is also advertising the tour in their spring week program. So if anybody is there, look out for the advertisement um, and for how you can download the tour, which I can get into that a little more later. Um, but are there, is there any other information that I haven't covered that you'd like me to talk about? You know, you've covered a ton of great information. Um, my, I have a couple of questions. None of them are huge, but just what was your favorite part about putting all this together? Um, the personal inspiration that I gleaned from the people who have lived in the East End in the past. Um, you know, I think that as I was, I was listening to Zerl Palmer, um, you know, he was the owner of the first uh, the first black owned um, pharmacy um, in the region through Rexall and um, Charles Young after the Charles Young um, Community Center. Jimmy Wingfield, who was he, I think he won over. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it was an amazing amount of races. His the first one at fifteen. Um, he he drove carriages in the East End at the age of seven and went on to own his own stable in, in France. And just, um, we had a jockey who went from being um, an enslaved person to a thoroughbred trainer, to a thoroughbred owner and breeder in one lifetime. Um, Julia Perry, she is um, a black female composer who lived in the East End and broke into the national music scene for class classical music. Um, Les McCann, you know, the national jazz mu musician actually uh, was went to high school in Lexington and um, he he carried bags for people at the Lyric Theater. So it was just 
I guess there are two elements. The first was just the, the personal inspiration that I, you know, just reading and writing about all of these people. I was like, if I can just be a quarter of any of this in my own lifetime, I am just in awe of how amazing all of these people are. Um, but also just really getting to know what the cultural heritage um, and landscape of the East End is. I feel like the East End is in the news a lot um, lately because of the development that's happening in the neighborhood, but you don't necessarily hear about its past and how, you know, it's, you know, we have the, the shotgun houses in the area that were obviously that's the built architectural and historical fabric. And, you know, we're interested in preserving those um, and the architectural side of that, obviously, but also just like just promoting the unique history of this neighborhood. I mean, and just spreading it and helping it to continue to thrive. You know, there are there are churches that have amazing histories and the congregations are still active today. Um, so, so I think that's does that answer your question? No, that does. Um, you mentioned the churches that uh, one of the coolest churches uh, that I've been to over in that area. Uh, there's actually a detour of the church in uh, it would have been 2014, maybe early 2015, somewhere like that. It's uh, one of the AME churches on the backside of Transit. I don't remember exactly what the name is, but it's a red church over there. It's hard to miss. Um, but it's so cool because uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, no, I'm not. Okay, no worries. Uh, we have two churches that are on the tour, and let me say we could have covered a bunch of them because they're all cool, but we did Shiloh Baptist and Greater Liberty. So Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's not either of those two. Um, but the cool thing about this church is that it was a uh, it was a stop on the Underground Railroad during the, you know, before the Civil War. And so there's actually a um, there's a tower or basically like a, a little hideaway, stowaway spot in the back of the church that you have to climb a little ladder to get up to. And it was such a cool thing. And, you know, honestly, it's so cool to be that close to a piece of history. Um, and so when you're talking about know, the vernacular architecture and everything and trying to look and say, okay, the shotgun houses are awesome. But for me, what's cool about it is that is our connection to those who came before us. Is without the people, the rest, I mean, they're just buildings, right? So I think it's so cool to get, uh, I guess, an insight into how people lived and just things that you read about. And you, it's something that we were all familiar with, but it's just different when you see it in person. Yes, and we, we do celebrate the architecture of the area and the tour as well. Um, you know, we talk about Kincaid Town and the Kincaid House. Um, and we kind of look at kind of how the neighborhood formed as a whole as well. You know, there was Gun Town and then there was Goodlow Town and there was Kincaid Town and kind of how those neighborhoods have changed. Um, streets have changed over time. Um, and, you know, there's the... Um, there. There are definitely buildings that are on the National Register. The Courtney Matthews House, for example, is on the National Register, and that nomination form is actually um, embedded into the tour itself. So we do celebrate the um, the significant architecture that's in the neighborhood, but it's just amazing to think about how much more history there is than what the what you can see with your eyes um, in in that neighborhood and. And we actually narrowed this tour down to 32 stops. So, I mean, the great thing about the way that the app is laid out is that you don't have to, ne you don't necessarily have to do all of them in um, chronological or consecutive order. You can skip around if you want to, and the app will direct you. Um, it'll pull up a little Google Maps, and it'll take you from wherever you are to the stop that you want to go to. So you don't have to do all 32. And we've laid them out unless you want to. 
Because I mean, that would be a significant chunk of your day if you decided to do that. Um, but it's worth it, I think. I mean, just getting that holistic view. And then, of course, you're going to see when you're walking around that if there's something that really in- like interests you, um, you can go home and, you know, here's a link to the hour-long documentary that the Lexington Public Library did on African Cemetery Number 2. You know, or you can go home and watch the Palmer Pharmacy detour and you can hear about Palmer Pharmacy and Dr. Zero Palmer's own words. Um, you know, and so, so there's definitely... Um, more that you can access outside of just taking the tour. So, I'll be honest, I'm sitting here and I'm listening to you and I'm also actually, you can't see this if you're listening to this, but I'm actually going through the app while we're talking because it, it is so cool and you're absolutely right that I, I love how interactive it is because just like you said, you know, if you want more information, it's right there, your fingertips, the pictures are great. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm fairly knowledgeable about uh, Lexington's history. And yet I've not heard of half the places that are on the tour, which is so cool because anytime that I get the opportunity to learn more about places I didn't know about, that's awesome. That's a win. And I think what we're interested in about places shifts over time as well. You know, I mean, there are, there are definitely places in the East end that have been and rightly so for a very long time. But what we wanted to do with this tour was give you an idea of what the neighborhood has been in the past Mm -hmm. and, what it is today as well, like the Lyric Theater, for example, um, you know, amazing people and jazz musicians and blues musicians definitely performed there in the past. And you need to know all about that. At the same time, we want you to know what's going on at the Lyric Theater today because it's still very live and hopping and we have programs there. And here's a way to interact with the community and to celebrate the community in the present as well as know about its past. That sounds fantastic. And you're right. The Lyric Theater is great. I know they, I think they redid it. I'm not sure exactly when, but awesome place. Uh, I went and saw uh, Sunday Best there a few years ago, which I mean, Sunday, saying Sunday Best kind of dates it. Uh, but it's it's a great place to see a show. Um, if you want to get out for an evening, very cool place. Uh, once we're all vaccinated and we can go to shows again, that will be at the top of the list of the places I want to get back. Um, so out of all the businesses, places, stories. Um, I know you mentioned a couple earlier, but what's your absolute favorite story when you're reading through it and you said, you know what, when you started the research, you said, I didn't know about that before. What was that? I think it was still Jimmy Wingfield. I think I'm going to have to stick to Jimmy Wingfield. Okay, that's, that's fair. I, and if you'll notice the, um, the story for him is quite long. I think I got a little carried away, but I was like, I can't cut anything out. You know, I know people are going to be standing here in the blazing sun trying to read smartphones, but like you can stay here for two minutes longer to read more about this man. Um, So Jimmy Wingfield, I mean, he raced for the czar in Russia. Like I said, he owned his own stables and um, like training facility in France. Um, And he was he started out as the the youngest of 17 children. He lived with his two oldest sisters on Warnock Avenue, which um, the tour takes you down today. Of course, the house isn't standing, but you can kind of see the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did carriages at the age of seven, and he started working with horses. And, you know, the Kentucky Association track was there. And he was started out as a jockey. I think he was 14 or 15. He ran a race in Chicago. His very first race, he was actually penalized and not allowed to race for another year because he um, very boldly cut across, I think, four other riders. Um, and unfortunately caused an accident. But once 
he um, once he got back on his feet again, I think he won by the time he was in this, you're going to have to read the tour. You're going to have to read the tour, but it was over a thousand races that he won in his lifetime, which is crazy. Um, if you think about it and he actually brought his daughter. So he fled, he fled um, the Nazis in France. He had to leave. Um, he had to leave Russia um, at one point, but um, he came actually back for a party, a pre Kentucky Derby party, I think it was the Brown Hotel. Um, you'll have to again read the story. There are lots of there's lots of information about all these stories floating around in my my head right now. But he was actually denied entrance to the party on the basis that of his skin color um, after this amazing lifetime in, in racing um, that he had had and all the success he'd had, you know, racing for the Czar of Russia, for example. Um, and he was only let into the party after. Um, somebody acknowledged that he had been sponsored or, or sent by Sports Illustrated. So um, kind of interesting, you know, it's interesting it's, to the people like Dr. Palmer who were really involved in civil rights, as well as, you know, the black men and women who really started the thoroughbred industry and the racing industry in Kentucky. So the juxtaposition of that is really interesting. That does make sense. It's, uh, it's interesting that you bring up the point that, you know, the black men really were the basis of the thoroughbred industry because when you look at those that were uh, taking care of the horses back even pre-Civil War, in the pre-Civil War days, uh, it really was the the slaves that were taking, doing that, that work. Um, you know, there were the, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so there was, and then like you said, the, the jockeys were often young African-American boys. Uh, they'd start at 12, 14 because that's when they were the size, you know, 100 pounds, 110 pounds, that so they could actually ride the horses. Um, it It's something that is really, I think, kind of overlooked right now. And when you go to the races these days, you know, it it just, it's a different look. And I don't think they get the recognition that they deserve. So it's very cool that you're, that you're stepping out and providing some of that recognition. And you're partnering with Keeneland to do that. Yes, yes. Um, definitely promoting the voices and the lives of the people who you know, think about how much the racing industry defines Kentucky's culture today. And that wouldn't be here without the men um, and their families who settled in the East End neighborhood and worked for the Kentucky or worked at the Kentucky Association track. So. so let's talk about the Kentucky Association, Kentucky Association track, because, you know, most people, when they think of uh, racing in Kentucky or at least in Lexington, they think of England. And Keeneland's a wonderful track, but it's only been around since 35 or 36, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, while it's almost 100 years, there, you know, there's a rich history of racing that went back way beyond that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. do you want to tell us? Yeah. Do you want to tell us about that? Um, just that, you know, the Kentucky Association track used to exist where the William Wells Brown um, Association or Wells Brown elementary school um, is today. And it's kind of interesting. If you look at aerial views of the area, you can kind of see how there's this big section of land that just didn't develop the way the rest of the neighborhoods around Lexington um, developed. And then there was, of course, the Bluegrass Aspendale project um, that was nearby. And then that has recently um, developed a little more over the years and changed to the, I'm totally blanking on the name. Thoroughbred. Well, it's a new neighborhood. Um, it's a thoroughbred something. Um, but but then all of those streets, all of the streets around it are named after 
you know, different um, horses in the racing industry or different um, different elements of the racing industry, which is really cool. Um, and then the Kentucky Association track itself, I need to do more research on. Um, you know, I wrote the little blurb for the tour, uh, but I'm sure Keeneland could definitely go into the racing history that is that is there as well. Um, the library has really cool photos um, as well as Keeneland of, of the track, which you can view on the tour. Um, and, you know, you were talking about, you know, how we've kind of forgotten a little bit about the black jockeys and trainers and owners who, who worked here and really got the racing industry off the ground. And that's true. And a lot of the, the built environment that would remind us is gone. Um, the Isaac Murphy house, for example, is no longer standing. Um, but I really do think it's in the early 2000s, 2001, 2002, I think. I think that was the year that another black jockey participated in and, and won the Derby. So there's this significant gap between all of Jimmy Wingfield's wins and then, you know, everything that fell out afterwards. And then um, celebrating the, that diversity in the racing industry again. So, Yeah, that makes... It is uh, frustrating. I mean, it's surprising and frustrating that there was such a gap there. Um, but you know, hopefully, with projects like this, that we can get back to the point where at least people recognize that that is part of part of our history, our shared history. Uh, and it's cool you mentioned uh, the library. You know, Keeneland has such a great library when it comes to, uh, or maybe you're talking about the special projects at, uh, collection, at, but. Keelan has a wonderful library for anyone that's interested that uh, anything that has to do with uh, the turf, um, racing, horses in general, it's at the uh, Keen Manor. I can't remember exactly what the house is called, but uh, just kind of general information is cool out there. But UK also has a... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. oh, I was just going to say, speaking of Keeneland Library, I would love to give a huge shout out to Becky Ryder, um, who is the director for all of the help that she provided with photos um, and also with editing. <laughs> so oh, yeah. Her huge help. She is very passionate about this history. She's very passionate about the Kentucky Association track. And um, she was just a huge help too, especially, you know, getting to the finish line at the end of the process. Um, she was amazing. So I, it sounds like you have put hours and hours and hours into this. Um, do you have any idea how many hours of work you put into this? I'm just kind of curious. <sighs> You know, it was an ongoing project. Um, the idea was introduced to the committee probably earlier this fall. And, you know, we kept thinking that we were done. We got it on history pen. And then um, a board member said, oh, goodness, I feel like you should move it to something that um, is a little more user friendly. This is good content. It needs a platform that matches it. And so then we kind of moved everything to CurateScape. And that's when our relationship with Keeneland really began. So I couldn't say... Um, I will say that I had a handful of committee members who um, helped with a lot of the writing for the stories as well, which was really helpful as I tried to like coordinate everything and get everything put together. Um, so again, a huge shout out to Gene Scott, Paul Holbrook, um, Wanda J. Quith, and um, Thomas Tolliver and Beverly Fortune as well. <laughs> um, sure, they're, yeah. They're a great part of the process, um, and I really could not have done it. Um, without them, it wouldn't it wouldn't be where it was today. So this was this was a project that, I mean, I could tell you the hours that I put into it, 
maybe, <laughs> but I couldn't tell you how many hours other people put into it as well. So it was definitely a collabor a collaboration um, within the Bluegrass Trust and with Keeneland as well. But I also remembered another favorite part of my tour. Speaking of people who yeah, of course. Uh, a part of the tour. Um, that is um, the poet, Kentucky Poet Laureate Frank X. Walker. Um, he wrote a poem, Ode to the East End. Um, and he, we read it. A committee member came to me and said, you know, this mural was just put um, on the side of the Met building in Lexington. And it has to do with the East End. We should incorporate it somehow. And so I thought... I'm just going to just cold call this guy <laughs> and see if he wants to be involved in this project. And I did. I just called him and I said, hey, you know, this is the Bluegrass Trust and I want to incorporate your poem into this tour about the East End. And he was so great. We actually sat down and we we did a recording session um, and he, he read Ode to the East End. And that's what actually kicks off the, the tour. You start at the Met Building and you make a big circle, basically, around the East End and you end back in kind of the same area at the Charles Young Community Center and Park. Um, but it's kind of neat to think that we're embracing poetry from today that also celebrates the past. And, you know, we have we have a poet who actually works in the Met, um, who is, you know, he has, his poem is on the side of the building and he did a recording for us. And, you know, it celebrates the actual history. I mean, it just couldn't be more perfect. It celebrates the history of the East End. So the, the poem or the tour is actually bookended with his poems. The first one is Ode to the East End and the the last stop um, right after you get back to the Charles Young Community Center in Park um, is his poem, um, Book of Genesis, East End Chapter. And that poem literally takes you from the very beginning of how the neighborhood started to where it is today. And so it was almost like it was faded that <laughs> this tour and those poems ended up together. So that's fantastic. That, thanks for sharing that one because that, that's super cool. Uh, Frank X. Walker, wonderful, amazingly talented poet. Um, he also has a really great voice. So very. I, I haven't listened to the poem yet, but I'm going to have to because uh, I listened to him. He did a reading of uh, Eroica a couple years ago at the Lexington uh, Opera House, and it was super cool. So honestly, I'll have to, I'll have to listen to that again. Yes, um, it's powerful. It's a powerful way to start off the tour, listening to his booming voice. You know, he's so passionate when he reads and you're just starting the you're starting the tour and you're realizing as you're listening to this amazing poem and the man who wrote it reading it like this place is really special to inspire something like this. Um, so I think it puts you in the right mindset and the right mood as you begin the tour. It's a great way of putting it. Uh, as we're winding down, let me just ask, is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to talk about that you'd like to share? Unless you have any other, oh, well, obviously accessing the app. So, um, oh, yeah, great, great question. <laughs> if you would like to take the tour, um, there is a website. Um, it's called tourthehistoricbluegrass.com. Um, and that's kind of the accompanying website to the app. So you can, you can kind of do it from your own home if you want to. You can check it out, check out mm -hmm. all the there, or you can download the app itself. It has, um, the BGT, um, logo as its icon. Um, and it's, the name of the app is Tour the Historic Bluegrass again, and it's available for both um, iPhone and Android. So, okay, awesome. Well, everyone, please check that out. Uh, please also check out Keeneland. The re uh, meet goes on, I believe, for another week or so. So, get out there, pet the ponies. Um, and then also, are the detours going to be uh, streamed to this app, or is that going to be separate? 
the detours have, are not specifically going to be streamed to the app. Definitely check out our YouTube channel um, for our detours. We just had a fantastic one about John Jacob Niles. I think it's one of our best, honestly, um, and so interesting. So definitely check out our YouTube channel, just the Bluegrass Trust for Historic Preservation, and um, see those detours. However, two of our detours are included in the Easton walking tour. So you can view those at um, the sites where they were recorded. Um, but just because, you know, we'd already done them on two of the stops. So. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I have to give you all so much credit because the production value on your detours, I mean, they've always been great. I've always enjoyed going to the detours and they're fun. They're, they're enjoyable, but now looking at them from more of a cinematic looking just as a watching something to see on the computer, on TV, whatnot, they're amazing. They're, they're really, really good. So you yeah, are. I know our detour committee and my coworker, actually, Jackson Osborne, has really been behind instigating um, upgrading the quality of those. So it, it's one of those things where COVID's been really hard uh, on a lot of people, but you guys have done such a good job of stepping up to the plate and adapting to the new norm, normal. So just props to you for that. Impressive. And uh, again, thanks for joining us on Two Glasses of Bourbon today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Deb. It was so nice to be here. Okay. Thanks, Brittany. I'll talk to you later.